0: If, if happens. I can't! I can't! I can't!
1: What we do in life echoes in eternity.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Shift Happens podcast, the show where I get to sit down with amazing and inspiring people to hear not only about the amazing things they're doing in the world right now, but also the challenges and the struggles and the fire that they've been through to have led them to where they are today. Today, I had a blast. I got to speak to uh, Anita Bentata. Anita is a Domestic violence activist. She is a speaker. She is an author. She's written this amazing book called The Wolf in a Suit. And we go into so much in this conversation. Like it was such, she speaks so well. She's so passionate and so knowledgeable. And this isn't just an episode for people who have experienced domestic violence or relationship of abuse. This is an episode really for anyone and everyone because she delves into how we have these involuntary actions that we take that are based on the programs that are running in our subconscious mind and how to acknowledge them and how to work through them and accept them and how to accept ourselves that was a big theme This about being able to have an inner acceptance of ourselves um, so that we can move forward in our life and be whatever it is we want to be this was a awesome chat. I'm not going to hold you up any longer so here is my conversation with the amazing Anita Bentada Welcome back to the Shift Happens podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hassan, and I have the absolute pleasure and privilege today to be joined by domestic violence expert, speaker and author, Anita Bentata. Anita, how are you?
1: Great. Thanks, Ryan. It's wonderful to be here.
0: No, thanks so much for coming. And your name just really rolls off the tongue, tongue, doesn't it? Anita Bentata.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does a bit. <laughs> you don't
0: realise how boring your own name is till you have someone who's got a really exciting name. We were talking just before we uh, pressed record about where that name comes from. Yeah. And it's, so your mum's has a Polish background mm-hmm. and your dad was African.
1: Yeah, from Egypt.
0: From Egypt.
1: Yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: so that's where the Bentata comes from.
1: Well, it actually comes from further back because originally my father's family came from Spain and being Jewish and in the Spanish Inquisition, we all had to leave there. So there's a strong family line history of persecution in my family. And the family went from Spain to Morocco. Our name in Spain was Del Reyes, which means of the kings. And I believe from history, we actually were... um, expert guides and consultants for the king. But in being Jewish and going to Morocco, we weren't allowed to keep that name. And so the Moroccan sultan gave us the name of Ben Tata. Tata is a town in Morocco and that's the town where they used to do the slave trade. Ben means son of So it was a real demotion from of the king to you know son (laughs) of the slave town, town kind of yeah. So then the family moved from Morocco to Egypt, and that's
0: okay. Because I initially when I heard that. Bentata, it sounded Spanish to me.
1: Yeah, That's, yeah. that's
0: actually where the old name came yeah, from. yeah. Because I thought, Anita Bentata, it's like you're a matador about to go out there and take on the bull or something.
1: Well, you're, you're on the right track.
0: Awesome, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So like I said at the start, you are a speaker and author, and your book, which is right in front of me now, is called The Wolf in a Suit. Yes. Um, this is a book about relationship abuse and domestic violence, yeah? It is. Can you give us a bit of a rundown? It's a big book. I'm holding it here. It's a, it's a, it's a big one. I like it. And like you said before we came on, you've tried to... write about things from many different perspectives um, Mm. so different people can take it on board. Do you want to give us a brief rundown of what the book's about and how you read it?
1: Sure. The Wolf in a Suit is based on my personal and professional experience. So part one is my personal story about how I got caught because I never imagined that this would be my life story or part of my life story and then I write in that first part of the book how I got caught, what daily life was like, what helped me to wake up and how I escaped with my two young children and what life was like going through police, court, family, therapy in recovering for all of us and the reflections about my parents and my upbringing and childhood. So I'm very vocal, I'm quite uncensored because for me, if we walk on eggshells, then we don't actually understand what's really going on and how we can all contribute to change. So then in part two, I speak as a psychotherapist because after my therapy, I then decided to change careers and became a psychotherapist and trained specifically in trauma and, and in abuse. So I weave in a number of fairy tales that I've reinterpreted and so each chapter has one or two fairy tales in it that are reinterpreted and from there I weave in information that is not in the general public and unfortunately even a lot of professionals' understanding. And these
0: are like classic fairy tales that you've taken and put a spin on? They are, they
1: are, yeah. Yep. Awesome.
0: Um, and it was interesting what you said there, about being uncensored about this topic and when it's whether it's this topic, whether it's a mental illness, whether it's addiction, I think it's so, so important that people are coming out and being authentic and open and raw and talking about these things mm. because once the conversation gets started and there's no bullshit about it, like this is what's happening, yeah. that's like like you said, that's when we can start to make changes in society but it takes the, the word to mm. ignite that movement.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. Um, also, as well, you said there... I wanna talk maybe a bit about, we're gonna go back into you know getting into that relationship and what went on, but the aftermath I think is really important because people I think sometimes if they're in a kind of abusive relationship that once the relationship's over, then you're free, mm. right? But it sounds like you had a lot of legal battles and things like that to go into afterwards.
1: Mm. Yeah, and it wasn't even just the legal battles. It was just the actual process of recovering from trauma because there's unfortunately, it, And I escaped in the 90s, but unfortunately, and this is why I really wrote my book, we don't as a society still, as a general society, understand about how to recognise trauma, how to work with trauma and how to respond Mm -hmm. on every level, personal and professional. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, as we were talking about before, there's so many people that are being re traumatized in the therapy that they're experiencing mm-hmm. because a lot of professionals think they know how to work with trauma and they're not specifically trained and unfortunately doing harm.
0: Yeah, I mean that it's such a something you have to be very gentle with. Mm. Um but also it's something that you have to go into if you want to make real change. Like mm. can you maybe talk about how you traced back maybe the situations you were in to things that maybe happened in your childhood?
1: So are you talking about from in the relationship? Yeah,
0: so after the relationship you said you had to do a lot of work around maybe your traumas and tracing things back to when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you able to maybe go into a few of the things when you were younger, that the the traumas that you had?
1: Sure. Well, if I also weave (laughs) in the night I met and I call him the wolf because I'm not going to mention his name for Mm -hmm. my own safety. Um, Also, don't want to say my ex because language is very important Mm. and I've moved on and I don't want an association with him. So for me, the wolf is talking about the aspect of him that used abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, So also naming the wolf is talking about that aspect and I hold to the... The possibility that people that use abuse, that that's not all of who they are. Yes. And so I'm just talking about that aspect. Mm -hmm. So the night I met him was at a party. And I went to that party as a single mum with my first daughter. And I went there. It was a friend of my brother-in-law's and my sister and brother-in-law invited me to go because I was utterly terrified to be on my own. Now the reason I was terrified to be on my own was because of my childhood experience. Mm -hmm. I was constantly fearful as a child of being attacked and I had nightmares and I was just always looking behind me and always seeing shadows of things Mm -hmm. as a child growing up. And so I put that to a number of reasons, actual experiences of, of abuse, but mm-hmm. also transgenerational trauma from my parents that, didn't, that they didn't work through. Yes. And so I've had a number of experiences of absorbing transgenerational trauma and you probably know this, but in those first six, seven years of your life, children are in a hypnagogic state –
0: It's that imprinting phase, right? Yeah.
1: So we're like sponges where we're absorbing everything and we don't know how to filter what's not ours to what's ours. Mm. Our brain is not sophisticated yet. It's very simple. Yes. And we're exposed to the conscious and the unconscious. So we're absorbing so much. So on so many levels, like when I – I can remember seeing my father's face and I was always scared of him. We were all scared of him kids that came over to our house were scared of him he was very fierce Mm -hmm. Um, and so as a child when I saw that fierce face and that tone of the voice and the look in his eyes I couldn't interpret what was to do with me if there was anything to do with me Mm -hmm. I thought it was about me and I grew up believing that he was angry at me that I had done something wrong and I was always disappointing him Mm -hmm. and it was only after I'd done my therapy good therapy as an adult that I realised actually a lot of that wasn't to do with me at all, probably yeah. all of it actually, because yeah, yeah. I was a pretty meek, quiet child. I learnt to be invisible as a way of coping with everything that was going on mm-hmm. that wasn't getting addressed.
0: Yeah, yeah. there's that, Um, it's an innocence that we have, isn't it, in that stage of our life and we take everything on board, like you mm. said, and we have there's an ego in us that says everything that happens in the world is because of me and you know we can we can be sitting in a high chair eating some food and mum will drop something on her foot and be like ah, shit and we'll think oh what have I done Mm. because it's all about us and it's Mm. interesting being and we'll get into how you uncovered that and we're able to unpack that but Mm. um, yeah it's it's a very important realization to make that hey all this stuff that happened wasn't Mm. my fault.
1: Yeah yeah and and so part of the passion of my work is what I think is missing in your field and my field, Mm -hmm. is the recognition of the unconscious and how much we need to understand and reconnect back to the wisdom and and being able to listen to and take the information from the unconscious because it's always wanting to communicate and bring more to consciousness.
0: Of course, and bringing things up for resolution, things Mm. we need to work on. Mm. We're going to get into that first. Let's go back to the the party you went to with your daughter at the time when you met the wolf.
1: Yes, so... Yeah, the fear from childhood meant I didn't want to be alone. So I went to this party and there was a man there. And as soon as I saw him, I didn't like the look of him. And I did the best I could to just steer a clear away in the people in the room to not go towards him. But he clearly had spotted me and liked me and he would just follow me from room to room. Even when I went in a room to breastfeed my daughter, private room, and closed the door, he walked in. Okay. So there were already lots of red flags. So I was never attracted to him. and But because of my childhood that I had learnt from a very young age, be quiet, don't say or do anything that's going to upset your parents. Mm-hmm. I had no access to being able to be fierce. And I'd also been told very specifically from my mother growing up, don't be angry. God's always watching you and you'll be punished if you're angry, not let letter hate. Okay. So, I so had,
0: that's suppressing of anger whenever yeah, it comes up, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So wasn't a, I was so disconnected from my own body and from my own feelings and my own needs. I had a lot of shame about having needs and I'd learnt as an involuntary coping mechanism to be a chameleon and be invisible and so I was really good at that. So when I was with this dominating person and I, it was so overriding of my system to don't offend anybody, don't upset anybody, All I could say to him on that night was, I just want to be friends. I didn't even want to be friends with him. Mm -hmm. But that was the least offensive way of saying a no, go Mm. away.
0: That was probably the most fierce you were capable of at the time, right?
1: Absolutely. And people need to understand that this is all involuntary, that when we're stressed, those survival mechanisms take over. So even though I was older and not living with my family, as we know about trauma, there's those neural pathways when we're not allowed to be with our instinctual and full self are interrupted and therefore they are... They don't have closure, and therefore when we're in certain situations that have a resonance with it, we involuntarily go into those coping mechanisms. Yeah,
0: It's like that, you know, whenever that belief system was formed, whether it was that three-year-old or that five-year-old or that seven-year-old, whenever that situation comes up, it's like that five-year-old comes up again to cope in the same way that helped them survive in that first event.
1: Yeah, and so there was a, a double bind too because he gave me his phone number And he gave me, he had a pager because of his work and he said... This was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so I had the number on the pager and he said, you can contact me 24-7 whenever you want. Okay. And coming from... Someone like myself who back then was so terrified of being in the world and who felt so alone and my parents were both very absorbed in their own journey of what they were going through and my sisters from coping mechanisms were also only able to be with their stuff and people weren't you know even though we appeared a close family people weren't able to really be real about what was going on everyone was quite disconnected and in their own trauma space Mm -hmm. and so even though he was a person that I instinctively didn't want to moved towards, he was the only person in the world that was saying, I'm here for you whenever you need me. And so given that as a child developmentally that's what we need from our parents and I didn't get that Mm -hmm. because both my parents were so unavailable, something in me got hooked into that. Yes. Yes and so when that
0: that fear of being alone it's like hang mm -hmm. on I've got 24 access here to not be alone if I don't want to be
1: yeah and this isn't just fear that people talk about when they're fearful about something in their everyday life this kind of fear hits on life death terror of survival when it hits on the child not being able to get that sense of security so it's it's Very, it overrides.
0: Yeah, it takes over. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so then when he was trying to date me in the beginning, I can remember clear as anything walking down the street with him, not liking and not wanting to be with him, but everything was in that shut down mode of I can't escape. Mm -hmm. And I can remember hearing my mother's voice about you're not meant to hate anyone, you have to love everybody. And because both my parents were spiritual or religious in different ways, I'd absorbed a lot of that. those messages that a lot of them were not appropriate for a child mm. because they weren't in context with real life events that happen. And so I can remember hearing my mother's voice about those kinds of messages and telling myself this must be my spiritual mission to be able to love this person because I couldn't escape so I had to love the person that did not feel lovable which actually was a replication of what I experienced with both my parents Mm -hmm. that in many ways my instinct for my parents would be I want to get away, you're scary, I don't like the feeling I feel when I'm around you mm-hmm. but of course we're told on verbally and non-verbally growing up that you can't do that you can't show that mm-hmm. and so I learned this double bind that you love the person that's not lovable you love the person that's scary mm. you love the person that's most risk to you yeah and so that was the double bind from childhood that really shaped me, me being aware of that i don't like this person but that immediately shutting down yes
0: i think you explained that so well and that's important that you explain it in that way because there's a lot of other people especially women who feel that way right Mm. now i think Mm. and you're the double bind that's exactly what it's like you you Mm. caught from both sides yeah so from here you started dating him
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah even yeah. it was it was like I shut down. Be, it was like, because I had no option that my system could go to, no one to talk to, no support, and I was utterly terrified that that was the worst thing was being on my own in the terror. I actually, when I left the relationship I'd been in for about six years with my first daughter, mm-hmm. and I was terrified of being alone. I went and. I'd lived with my sister when I had first left that relationship and then coincidentally around the time of that New Year's Eve party I went and found an accommodation for me and my daughter and because I'd met the wolf and he'd given me that number, when I got the keys and went into this place I'd only been there 15, 20 minutes and the terror burned through me, Mm -hmm. rushed through me and I was so overwhelmed that I rang him mm-hmm. and I I need you to come and get me out of here and I left that place. I, I returned the keys. You are in could, such a vulnerable state, weren't I you? I could not tolerate to be on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had, how
0: interesting that the exact time that you were moving out of his sister's place to get your own place, he came into the picture. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. So I
1: moved in with him because the terror of all the unresolved trauma from childhood felt, more intolerable than Mm. being with him.
0: And it's all unconscious at this point, isn't it? You're just sort of going, I'm just following my feelings, this is what I have to do without being Mm. able to look at it like you are now. Mm. And so how long were you guys together?
1: Close to six years. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. Yeah, and you had a daughter together as well? We did, Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay,
0: and so through that period was there a specific moment or time that you had a realization that you you wanted to get out or was there a common thread of that throughout the relationship
1: it was a common thread right from the word go yep. i didn't i i remember the early days of how do i get out of here but it was like what was shut down was being able to talk to anyone because i'd had a whole childhood where i didn't talk to anyone about the reality and so there wasn't anybody i could talk to i had no money um, I had a little child from the beginning and I was utterly terrified. So I didn't feel I had any options.
0: Yeah, so, you, you were just trying your best to love this guy that you were actually scared of.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can remember right from the beginning crying and wanting to get away but totally immobilised of not knowing how I could do that. Yeah, not being able to go. see
0: the next step. What what would I do? Yeah. So you felt stuck.
1: Yeah. You felt trapped. All, all, yeah, all the all way. All of
0: that. Um, okay, and what was the moment? How did you break free of that? How did you gather that courage to be able to step out of the relationship or start to think about it?
1: I was really aware as both my children were growing up, seeing the fear on their faces, seeing the trauma, and it was very hard to bear. Every day was trying to was all about trying to protect them and trying to give them something of a normal and, and fun life. Mm-hmm. But I think it became harder and harder. To ignore how much it was impacting them the older they got. And so, you know, my eldest daughter was starting to draw pictures that were concerning for me. And so it was like there was something that I'd absorbed from our society about when someone's troubled. Again, I couldn't do that for myself. There was no neural connection to doing that for me, but it wasn't shut down for my daughter, for me to think that for my daughter. And so I could take her to a therapist. Okay. So I took her to a therapist. Yeah. And the therapist, after a few sessions, agreed, yeah, there was something seriously wrong here. hmm And so that started a series of events of then going to, taking her to a specialist. Yeah. And the specialist also being concerned but I still wasn't aware of what I was living in then Mm -hmm. because the wolf was acting like a concerned stepfather all concerned took the day off work dressed up in his suit and presented all really well but what happened was I'm going to backtrack a little bit Mm -hmm. this is probably roughly five years into the relationship and I knew all that time that this was wrong. I didn't know the label that this was abuse but I knew it was wrong Mm -hmm. and I remember sitting in the doctor's surgery and reading one of the notices on the notice board and it saying, if your partner does this, does your partner do this and the list and down the bottom, small print, this is an abusive relationship. And
0: you were like, tick, tick, tick. tick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: I went home aware of that information and I totally forgot about that piece of paper till I wrote my book. Wow, okay. So over 20 years later. Really? And for me that was a real marker of that involuntary stress response because as soon as I went home, I had to be totally focused on the emergency mode of trying to protect my children and trying to prevent any explosions in the perception that I could Mm -hmm. prevent something
0: and did at any point when you were taking your daughter these therapy sessions was it ever did you ever have that thought like hey maybe I need to do some therapy too or you just wanted to care for her
1: yeah there was too much in my system that denied my existence denied my reality and my feelings that was still very shut down but my childhood hadn't shut down my care for other people Mm -hmm. so it was bountiful for my children, but there was like a gate that I couldn't get to for me. And it was only when the wolf had to go into hospital for some health problems, that I had the experience of being at home with my children for a decent period of time and that time of not him not being in the house it was like the fog started to lift yep. and i will never forget the day i'm walking to the dining table to bring their dinner and this light bulb moment of oh my god this is what life is meant to be like because it was just gorgeous light and just pleasure because i'm here with my daughters
0: and that fear and that stress melted away in that it, moment
1: yeah yeah it did gradually dissolved because he wasn't in the house and i'd had space whereas every day he was constantly re-traumatizing all of us so there wasn't enough space Mm -hmm. to get out of the stress response but because he was in hospital even though i was visiting him every day in hospital
0: it was enough to to interrupt that pattern and give you a bit of clarity to see things how they were
1: yeah absolutely because i knew knew he couldn't leave the hospital so it wasn't like it was, there was this unpredictable; it could come back at any point.
0: Yeah, you were waiting for the door to open or something that wasn't there. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So I and
0: you remember that moment quite vividly. I could see your face light up as you were talking about it just then.
1: Oh, it's it was a magic moment that just that clarity and and feeling a sense of me. And so then when I I didn't say anything to him while he was in hospital. But when I picked him up to bring him back home, I, again, I can remember driving home and saying these actual words, I'm taking my life back.
0: Wow. <laughs> and One of those powerful sentences you could ever say, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And the response that I got was, well, I'll train a 16-year-old. So – and then he backtracked from that saying – Oh, it's all because I'm sick. It's because I'm sick. But I knew it wasn't because it had been there from day one. Mm -hmm. And so I said no. So I'd got some strength because of that space away from him. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure also because my daughter had been in therapy and I'd had someone else witness yeah things aren't good
0: it was yeah you were you it's sort of a few things led up to that moment but it was the thing happening with your daughter and then the the space that you had that led to that clarity Mm. um so were you able to end the relationship at this point or did it drag on for a little bit i
1: still didn't know what to do i was Mm. still overwhelmed and that's the problem with the amount of awareness we have nowadays about domestic violence we've got fantastic awareness but I think the biggest problem now is that everybody is overwhelmed and they don't want to. Everybody's walking on eggshells. They don't want to upset anyone. And so they're either not wanting to upset anyone or they're overwhelmed and so people still don't know what to do with all the awareness that people have. Mm-hmm. But getting back to my story, after I told him that and he tried to do a bit of a backtrack and poor me kind of thing, mm-hmm when i said no it's still not okay he then said well let's go for some couple therapy now i knew we didn't need couple therapy but there was such a history of i can't say no to him Mm -hmm. that i said okay because there was no way there was just no option in my mind to disagree because he was relentless so
0: had that therapy go (laughs)
1: when the first session I felt courage, partly probably because I'd had this big break from him and partly because there was another person in the room. And so for the first time, probably in my life, I started really talking about what my life was like. And I felt safe to say it because she was in the room and because he still wasn't fully recovered. So he was still on a lot of medication. And so I felt safer because he wasn't his full self. She made an excuse for him to leave the room towards the end of the session. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, and I always feel emotional when I repeat this part of the story because she's the reason I got out. She said, get out, get out now. It's not gonna get better, it will get worse.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, she was the only person that spoke to me. Mm And her saying that was like, ah, you get the reality. Yeah. You, you get what you're speaking about, what's really going on, whereas no one else had. Yeah. So I went home. I didn't say anything to him. went home and when he was out, I would start ringing to look for a place for us to go. I s- contacted Social Security because I had no money mm-hmm. to get some money to be able to get out. And so with getting Centrelink assistance, finding an accommodation, it had to be a flat because there was no way I was going to be on my own. I was Mm. too terrified. He'd actually told me how he had the perfect way to kill someone and described it and he did. Mm -hmm. And um, he'd also made a pact with his brother Mm. that they would kill each other's ex-partners before they tried to commit suicide for themselves. So. Um, there was a double whammy.
0: Yeah, so you de- definitely didn't want to be alone at that point.
1: No, so yeah. I wanted to be upstairs, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be not alone. So I found a, a flat.
0: And what was that process like? You're able to find that relatively easy, just a bit of calling around. Yeah, the services were pretty good to be able to find that. It
1: it was just a a flat open mm-hmm. for the you know it was just a public. Yep. Yep. Um, sorry, a private rental. Mm-hmm. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So. Yeah, back then it wasn't, I don't think it's difficult to get rental accommodation as now. Mm -hmm. So that, from my memory, though probably back then everything was a blur because of the amount of trauma Mm -hmm. I was in. But yeah, I got away. I went to my family and then I told them I'm in an abusive relationship and I'm about to leave. Mm -hmm. And I asked my father and my sister to be at my house the day I had booked a removalist so that they could help me Mm -hmm. because I wanted to go to court on that day because I was too terrified. So I met with them for the removalist to come and then they were overseeing while he was out at an appointment, they saw the basics of what I was taking, Mm -hmm. the children's toys and clothes. Uh, my clothes I didn't want any th- reminders of anything there I just wanted my fridge that I'd come into the re- and my washing machine that I'd come into the relationship with and that was pretty much it
0: and, and what was that process of telling your family and asking them for help because obviously that wasn't something that you had done in the past mm. but you had this newfound courage I suppose to be able to do that
1: yeah I don't know if it was courage or more desperation mm-hmm. Yeah, and, courage and, that came from desperation. Yeah, yeah. And and so they came, they did that, but then in the seven years of going, r- roughly, of going to court to try and protect both my children, no one ever came and sat with me in court. No one ever... Um, you know, I ended up having to go to court three times to get an intervention order because each time... It expired he would assault me again okay. so I was in court all the time to try and protect my children or or for my own safety
0: and seven years you said yeah, these yeah. different kind of court yes so, yeah,
1: seven years just to protect my children he he had handcuffed my daughter when we were together um, when my daughter my other daughter was on contact visits with him he would take her on holidays and he would tie her with a rope and she would come back and tell me and because i had no proof other than my daughter's word he got normal contact Wow! so wow. i was only going through court to protect my children so that they could have what the normal human rights for any child to have yeah.
0: and, and before we came on you told me a really interesting story um to do with your daughter if you want to share that when you were able to um, go through the court so that she didn't have to see him yes, anymore
1: sure So when I went, I refused contact when I escaped because there's no way as a mother I could go, sure, and hand my daughter over to someone that I knew was so abusive Mm. on so many levels. So from legal advice, because I, I consulted before I did that, the lawyer had said, well, then You do that and he will be the one, if he wants to, to take you to court. So then he took me to court for contact with my daughter. Because I wouldn't agree to contact through that process, because he was so revengeful, he then decided to add to that court proceedings and applied to the court to see my daughter from my previous partner, so who was not his biological daughter. Mm -hmm. The court gave him the right to see her, so she was going to see him regularly. I think it was every week, every Wednesday, because my daughter used to say Wednesday was the worst day of the week. She hated Wednesdays. So, (laughs) talking about this on a Wednesday. Yeah, (laughs) it is too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So she was forced to see him. So then I went through court to try and stop her from having to see him as well as trying to protect my other daughter. Mm -hmm. That took quite a while to actually stop her from being able to go and I remember the day I came back home after being at court and told her that she didn't have to ever go back again and a few hours after that she had her first ever seizure Mm -hmm. and I saw that as her system discharging it was just such a massive fast big discharge of but course. it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my do- mm-hmm. my life to see her with her eyes roll back convulsing mm-hmm. yeah. and i can remember thinking i'm going to look after you forever because i didn't know if she'd recover or not yeah. from it i'll i'll be by your side forever i'll look after you yeah. and ring the ambulance and waiting for the ambulance to come and then we got sent home again and then the next night roughly around the same time we started getting scared because we had that trauma imprint.
0: Yeah, you're like, is it going to happen again? Yeah,
1: and it did. Mm -hmm. And so when we went to the hospital, they wanted to put her on epileptic medication. But I was concerned because that doesn't resolve it and Mm. I saw that it's just going to increase the pressure in her system and her system, I believed, was discharging from the years and years of trauma.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can... Make that call with your background and also knowing that it happened exactly, you know, around that time when this massive bit of information came into her body and her realisation that she didn't have to experience that worst day of the week again all the time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I actually wasn't – I hadn't changed careers yet because I was too busy. Court was too consuming. Mm. I wasn't able to do anything other than take the three of us to counselling and go to court appearances and take the kids to school. And there was there was no room to do anything else. That my children's trauma responses were quite big, mm-hmm. and it took me. So that was one of the impacts of domestic violence that I couldn't work. Just um, another impact, right? Yeah, yeah. The financial impact is quite um, pervasive for many many years, mm-hmm. and I still haven't recovered mm-hmm. um, from the impact of that.
0: And so, and how so, long did the seizures last?
1: I think from memory there was three nights of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it wasn't from my trauma knowledge then. It was from my, just my inherent. Inner knowing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My beautiful unconscious. Yeah. And because I very much believed in always try a natural approach first. So I took my daughter to an amazing guy who still practices now traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, okay. Russell Shaw at mm-hmm. the Satfa Center, if I can give him a plug. Yeah, we'll put that in
0: the show notes as well, Yeah, because
1: he is just magic. He's just incredible. And so she had Shiatsu, I, on his advice um, and his partner Michaela, who was the first Shiatsu therapist because they worked together, mm-hmm. um, but Michaela's no longer working, but... So I totally changed what food she ate, what we all ate, based on what they advised. Yeah. And so she was having shiatsu and moxibustion and, you know, whatever they understood that she needed. Yeah. She's in her 30s now and she's never had a seizure since. Wow. And never been on medication. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And does she like Wednesdays now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she does. But I don't yeah. think she's even aware. <laughs>
0: oh, it's so good. Yeah. Um, So lead us now into when you did change careers and you got into this uh, therapeutic space.
1: Sure. So when I escaped, I took myself into therapy because somehow I'd absorbed from society that, you know, therapy is there for us. So I took me and the girls to therapy and... That was the best thing I ever did. I felt like there was this constancy for the first time in my life of a safe place. Mm -hmm. Because that double bind about love that I grew up with also had a double bind about what was meant to be safe is not safe. And so for the first time in my life, I got to experience a place where I was welcomed and was genuinely safe for me. Mm -hmm. And going there was like home. And my girls, I can remember, would run in the front door and the rocking horse would be near the front door in near the waiting room and yeah. it, it was safe for them and safe for me. And so we spent a lot of time there all getting our therapy and going into group work there. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of years of therapy there, I thought, oh, I think I might want to do this as a career. <laughs> I, previously, I'd worked in accounts and bookkeeping, okay. and that was really safe for me because it was working with numbers and not with people.
0: Yeah, but I'm trying to feel safe again—that yeah, thing, right? Absolutely,
1: yep. it was trying to make my world small because my internal protector knew that people were a risk. But if mm. I can work with numbers and calculate, numbers aren't
0: going to hurt me. No, I'm yeah. safe
1: here, <laughs> and being in a good workplace enabled me to get a bit more confident. So I knew that I wanted to work more with people, but I didn't know what. Mm -hmm. And so after I thought, well, I want to be with my children in those early years. I'll work it out when I'm with my children. At some point, I'll work out what I want to do next. Mm -hmm. And so my experience of therapy led me to, ah, I want to give this a go. So I did the volunteer program at the counselling centre that I was attending, because I'd left school at 16 and, the thought of going to university freaked me out. And so I became a volunteer to see, you know, what what is this like? Do I really yeah, want to do Get a this? feel for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I loved it. And so then I went to university, qualified there from the Bachelor of Human Services. Awesome. And then from there I did four-year private training on trauma because when I was working in the field I knew I needed more than what the... Um, the universities offer it was a brilliant d- degree, mm-hmm. but like any degree, it focuses on what I call the masculine principle, mm-hmm. the conscious, rational self, and I ne- willpower and force. Yes, yeah. yes, yep. and the right way to think and the right way to behave. But we can often know the right way, but we have involuntary responses that override, and the unconscious is always going to override the conscious if there's a conflict in the system yes so i then went and trained for four years and that there was a requirement in that that you had to do your own therapy mm. um, with one of their professionals mm-hmm. and i think it should be essential for you know the compulsory for all therapists
0: 100 percent. that's yeah. that's one of the mandatories here that we When we put on a new therapist, they go through the training program, but the biggest probably chunk apart from the actual training and the information is going through weekly, the intense therapy revolving in trauma. Mm. Um, So tell me what that process was like for you going through that therapy as a patient.
1: It was the best thing I ever did in my life. Because when I went after I escaped and was looking for a therapist, I kept changing therapists because there was caring people out there, but they couldn't help me, and I could feel it early on. It's like you're just telling me cognitive behavioral stuff, mm. conscious, rational. Well, if you're thinking this, think that, and and it's like that just didn't sit with me. It's like I can't. This is this is something missing. Yes. And so when I found this training, as soon as I walked in from the first session, it was like ah, you can be with the whole of who I am. You can be with all the different parts of me. You can be with my unconscious. You can be with the unnameable, the things that get buried. Mm. And I can be safe to bring out those things that my system has been in interrupted mode with and resolve them rather than being in a managing mode. Yep. So it was. I was happy to do that. That was what I spent my money on, my therapy.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's like it can one of the most confronting things, but one of the most amazing things once you actually do it. Yeah. So were you able to then trace back a lot of these fears of being alone and, and, and then wanting to love someone who's um has maybe some anger going on and you were able to trace that stuff back?
1: Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So we worked a lot with the unconscious limiting beliefs and and how the brain and the body are impacted and shaped through trauma and how to support the discharge of it in a safe and way where we can metabolise what we couldn't originally metabolise or or come to terms with. Yeah. So it
0: and was. S- and so, how would you say you were different at the start of that therapy and at the end of that therapy?
1: The start of the therapy, it was like I was. There was the the skin of me and I was hiding somewhere in me. Yep. But by the end of it, it was like I could inhabit myself mm. and inhabit my thoughts, my feelings, the unthinkable and the unbearable and have the emotional muscle to be with the whole of what's going on. Mm. Because I would learnt this involuntary thing of you don't talk about the elephant in the room. And by the end of it, it was like you... Yep, I talk about everything
0: (laughs) Bring on the elephants Yeah, yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's good because I I just get I love hearing these stories About where people came from Because you come in here And it's the first time we've met face to face And being able to look at you now Look at you in the eyes I mean there's such a confidence there and such a compassion there and even you mentioned fierce earlier. There is a, a fierceness there, which I love. It's just so amazing and it, it comes from being able to get comfortable in our own skin and be with all our, the, the shadow side, the darkness and acknowledge and love the darkness as well so we can show up to be authentic and I feel like that um, was the result of you going through that therapy in the unconscious mind.
1: Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. So
0: then after that, sorry, can you go on?
1: I was just going to say... I was in the blackest, darkest hole when I left, but it was that that woke me up from how I'd been asleep my whole life. And so waking up was... And being able to inhabit myself for the first time after I started therapy, I started feeling like I was a child, standing next to other adults. I didn't feel like an adult. And over time, I just kind of feel oh, I feel like I'm growing up a bit more. I'm, growing I'm an adolescent up a- now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm an adult. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, I'm an adult. And I think because I was exposed to so much fear and harm on so many levels from my family and from the wolf that being able to engage through trauma and resolve all of that, now when I go out in the world, I don't need anyone to reflect or approve of my experience or my reality it's I've had all of the worst things that can happen including both my parents disowning me mm-hmm. for being myself after I, I left yeah so it's like there's nothing worse that can happen
0: I love has developed that strength isn't it yeah that inner strength yeah. Uh, so after this, the four years of training and everything, then you started practicing and taking on clients from there?
1: I did. I first became employed where I'd been a client, mm-hmm. which was really wonderful, where awesome. I'd done the volunteer training. Um, but after a while I got frustrated, not from the organisation, they are amazing, uh, but because of the red tape mm. of how organisations with funding and everything, And so I went into private practice so people could see me for as long as they wanted to and so I could be free to do anything from what I was trained to do with them.
0: Yeah, and so and your main clientele at this point was women, focusing on that uh, abusive relationships and domestic violence or were you seeing sort of a lot of different people as well?
1: I was seeing a lot of different people, Mm -hmm. mostly women because generally it's women more likely to come into therapy than, than men. But... The thing was that everybody, no matter what they came about, very often there would be a story of abuse, whether from a relationship as an adult or from childhood that was still unresolved and was still shaping and influencing mm. but hadn't been named as abuse. Yep. And unfortunately I also train professionals now and you know, I'll I'll get the professionals, put up your hand if you work with domestic violence. And I can remember this group of very experienced professionals and none of them at the start of my training put up their hand. And by the end of the training I said, now put up your hand if you realise that you have been working with... All the hands went up? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Amazing. You you spoke earlier about transgenerational uh, trauma and that kind of thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure, sure.
0: Because I love this stuff. This yeah, stuff.
1: yeah, yeah. It's it's part of that unconscious because our cells carry memory and we also have they carry some
0: trauma. Yeah. And there's there's a really good study that's been done recently. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but um, they did this study with rats. And what they did, they took these group of rats and they would traumatize them so they would shock them on the feet electrically. Now whilst they did this shocking treatment, they would spray cherry blossom spray. You know in their environment so after a couple of times the rats had this trauma and they associated the smell of cherry blossom with being shocked so you didn't have to shock them anymore you just spray the cherry blossom and they'd have a big fear response run to the corner of the cage they never traumatized those rats again those rats grew up and had baby rats now those baby rats uh, as they grew up they were never traumatized they never got shocked whenever you sprayed cherry blossom scent they would freak out and run to the corner of the cage mm. and it happened with their uh, kids as well so it was at least two generations deep
1: yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, and I know that not from a rat's experience, I know it from my own lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll share two stories with you if Amazing, I can that, that really brought home for me what I already knew about the unconscious and how cells carry memory, and that's one of the biggest gaps in our society, that we have lost the connection to the unconscious and the body, and so I mentioned earlier that my ancestors come from Spain on my father's side of the family. I was blessed a few years ago to go to Spain and so I was very excited to go to the place of my ancestors and I absolutely fell in love with Spain and was having a ball touring and going all around Spain till we got to one town. And as soon as I got to this town, I didn't like it. I felt like it was dirty, it was felt unsafe and I started having nightmares every night, really extreme, full-on nightmares. And it was such a contrast from my whole experience previously in Spain. And I could not remember, I'd gone amnesic, I could not remember what town our family came from in Spain. And I only thought about it after having the nightmares and so I contacted one of my sisters and I said, where did our family come from again? And she named the town that I was in. Wow. (laughs) So for me, that's a real example of ancestral trauma because I didn't have a personal connection to it. But there's
0: associations there somehow. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise you wouldn't have been having this amazing time in Spain and then all of a sudden get to this one town and you're having nightmares and it feels yuck and unsafe.
1: Yeah. Another example of ancestral trauma or transgenerational trauma is growing up, I was always terrified to have a shower. And I always saw this devilish, evil man's face laughing at the shower head. And I would ask my younger sister to come in the bathroom with me because I just couldn't stand being in the bathroom on my own. It utterly terrified me more than words can say. Mm -hmm. And then after my shower, what would happen was this really weird experience of I would feel like something was crawling under my skin all over me. And I can't really demonstrate it because I might knock the microphone, (laughs) but I would frantically be rubbing myself all over. You kind of get, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I couldn't, it was like there was this silent scream in me that I couldn't scream, but I could feel this scream rippling through me as I felt this excruciating thing going all over underneath my skin. And I could never work out what it was. And as an adult, because it continued into adulthood, as an adult, I thought, is it, am I allergic to the soap or the shampoo? And but I used all natural products and I mm. tried different natural products, and didn't matter what I tried, it was still there. And then a n- number of years ago, I was invited to be part of an exhibition at the Dax collection. I don't know if you know. No, no, what's that? they're in melbourne they're fantastic in parkville and they have exhibitions to do with you really need to look them up to do with mental health awesome Um, and they present different um, installations and exhibitions to do with different themes Mm -hmm. to do with mental health and and so there was one exhibition where they had children of the holocaust in one room of the exhibition And along in that same exhibition, in the next room, they had children of the children from the Holocaust. So I was in that room naturally. So I did a few paintings for this exhibition uh, about my childhood and how I believe it was affected. So naturally I thought, oh, my shower experience. Oh, light bulb moment. I had relatives that were killed, gassed Mm. in concentration camps. Yeah. Yeah. by the showers
0: Yeah, that's right
1: So I painted this painting of me as a little girl Being terrified of that figure at the at the shower After I did that painting, that, that sensation stopped
0: Really? From that point? Mm, mm. So you resolved it through art?
1: Yeah, yeah It was like what was unspoken and unrelated to I could have relationship to it And um, through the giving form and yeah Wow, it was
0: what yeah. an amazing story. <laughs> Have you ever done art therapy before?
1: Well, part of the qualification that I did yeah. in trauma as a soul-centered psychotherapist works with the whole psyche. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, because there's a lot of working on many different ways with the unconscious, mm-hmm. we also work with art. So Beautiful. yes, I was doing a lot of that.
0: So it wasn't the soap? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's always something deeper, isn't it? Yeah. Always. Well there's two two real life examples and the rat example of that genealogical trauma because it's so it's so prevalent. We see it here so much. We have mm. to go back to these things and resolve it. But because it is locked in that unconscious and if we can access the unconscious, then it can be healed. So it's not like a fatalistic attitude like, oh, bloody hell, my nan's given me this thing. I'm never going to be able to heal it. And like from your example with the painting, you were able to process that in a certain way so it wasn't going to affect you anymore. Mm, I mm. love it. It's so good. All right, what we are going to do? Good. We're going to get stuck into the question round now.
1: Go for you it. Go for it. Oh, <laughs> I'm having a ball here, by the way. Me too. Thanks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, we've probably touched on this already, but my first question is what negative emotion or thought pattern has held you back? the most in the past so would that be that not feeling safe thought pattern you think
1: definitely that the world's not a safe place and people aren't safe Mm -hmm. I think within that there was a lot of I know not just think because in my therapy I had to process this excruciating shame for having needs Mm. because as a child I had to for survival make my parents be good And so uh, everything that felt bad got turned in on me Mm -hmm. because I was dependent on them Mm -hmm. and because I knew it wasn't safe to show them and reflect back to them that what you're doing is bad. So that meant that I internalised all this badness and I had excruciating shame about having needs and being seen. Mm -hmm. And so there was just this strong pervasive disconnect and shame to enable that disconnect to shut me down about my needs and not being okay to show myself that and and I'd had real-life experiences from bullying all through school through my and through the experiences in my family through the wolf that were real yeah. about don't be seen
0: yeah how do you feel about having needs now or asking for what you want
1: it's still a it's much, much better. Mm-hmm. St- I can still feel an edge of discomfort about it or vulnerability, mm-hmm. but it doesn't stop me from doing it or asking for yeah. it. And really so, important. Yeah, really
0: yeah. important. Feeling that vulnerability, maybe feeling that bit of fear, but doing it anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's so small compared to what it used that to little be. A
0: bit of residue.
1: Yeah, hanging around. Yeah,
0: um, and. What are you working on on yourself at the minute, maybe self-development-wise or an area of your life? Is there something you're focusing on particularly at the minute?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I do speaking now, I think I waited till my children were adults because I couldn't talk about this when they were children because mm-hmm. it's about them too and their their life. Yeah. So I had to wait before I wrote my book to get their permission. Yeah. And so
0: how, how were they about that?
1: They were uncomfortable mm-hmm. but... I don't think they wanted any other child or woman to go through what we all went through. And so they said do it even though it was uncomfortable for them. Mm -hmm. So Yes. So they were the only two people I asked permission for. And, yeah, they – yeah.
0: Yep, so it's the speaking that you're focusing on now?
1: The speaking. And so I'm comfortable because of all the therapy at work I did speaking. But when I started speaking – I noticed, and that was a few years ago now, I noticed this pattern where I can talk about things but not in things or from things. It's like I can Mm -hmm. talk from the intellect because that's safer. That gives me some distance. But to tell it in a real personal way, which needs to happen because otherwise if we're not affected then change doesn't get incorporated. Mm. We can talk and hear statistics and facts till the cows come home. It
0: doesn't hit the heart though, does it?
1: But if it doesn't hit the heart, it's not going to change us in how we engage differently in our own family mm-hmm. and friends and our own personal life. So I knew I had to step to another level to be able to step into my own vulnerability and speak from there. Yeah. And that was hard work to do. Mm.
0: And how did you go about doing that? How did you how were you able to be vulnerable and open up? Was that just through sort of practicing through doing it and trying it? Or was it trying it in front of one or two people first?
1: Well, part of it was, you know, I could do my therapy work on myself of working with the unconscious beliefs and I had tools that work with the, the involuntary responses in the body and the limiting beliefs that could help metabolize that. So that's always the foundation of what helps me to mm-hmm. move on. But part of it was also my childhood learning was I've got to be self-reliant. There's no one available there for me. And so part of it was I've got to make myself vulnerable and ask for help. Mm -hmm. I I can't do it all by myself. Sure, I could, but it would be harder and slower and tougher. And so I needed to ask someone for help, which for my character structure is like the most excruciating thing to do because then it's acknowledging I've got gaps and needs. Yep. And so along the way, I've had different amazing, each one's been an amazing mentor and coach to help me to bring more of myself out. Nice. Yeah. And you enjoy the speaking? I do. I love yeah. it. And I think because it's so funny because my whole life I wasn't speaking. Yeah. And then as a therapist, it's not about me speaking. It's all about my client speaking. Yeah. And it's like the first time in my life I can talk about yeah. me. This
0: whole new part <laughs> coming out. I love that. Yeah. What is there any particular like resources, like books or something along the way that apart from your one, obviously? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Is um, is there any other books or resources or mentors or even could be online mentors that have helped you, you know, on your journey to where you are now? Yeah.
1: Oh, I am an avid reader. I Mm. love reading. And so there's so many books. And of course, yeah, my book, The Wolf in a Suit. Yeah. Also, before the end of the year, I'm going to have a series of books out um, that, for me, is the essential guide of what we all needed that's complementary to my book. It's not repeated information. Awesome. It's It's all the gaps of what our parents don't tend to teach us to do with relationships, to do with Stress—it goes to another level to what I've got in my book. So when they get released, relatively soon before Christmas, you'll have to come back on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, the one of the books, a few of the books that really helped me when I first left was "Women Who Love Too Much," okay. and that's an oldie, but it was one that was quite profound for me. That was given to me by my stepmother. And it helped. It helped a lot. Also, Men Who Hate Women and The Women Who Love Them was another book. And
0: Cleo's fe- nodding over here while she's taking the notes. She's <laughs> like, yes,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. They were the three first books that I read after I escaped okay. that really imprinted and stayed with me yep. and, and helped. The the next book that really stayed with me was Women Who Run With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, mm-hmm. which in a sense, she, me in doing the interpretations of fairy tales in my book has been really inspired by Clarissa's book because awesome. she has fairy tales. I don't know if you know the book.
0: No, no, I don't. Yeah.
1: It's a book for women mm-hmm. and each chapter is a different fairy tale and yeah. then she tells the story. In the context of a woman, a woman's journey. Gotcha. And it's a profound book, and for me, that was my bible of about being a woman healthfully in the world. Amazing. And being able to engage with the full spectrum of life um, through those stories, and yeah, acknowledging just the depth and breadth of being a woman. So that was that was wonderful. What's
0: What's being this place? Big question, but what's being the divine feminine that inner goddess? Like, what's that all about that feminine energy, that strong feminine energy?
1: I don't tend to really speak about the the goddess because there's this thing about goddesses that if you look at history before mankind or humankind honoured God, a masculine masculine entity. Mm -hmm. There was honouring the feminine and there was this feminine, very full figure that was connected to the feminine principle and connected to earth and nature. Mm -hmm. And it almost seemed then that that was too much for people to bear of the feminine being so important that she got divided into goddesses, okay. and we'll have a goddess for this and a goddess for that, like Aphrodite for beauty.
0: Got uh, fragmented. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and it's like have her in pieces, and all those aspects are important. It's another great book, Goddesses in Every Woman, mm-hmm. is a brilliant book. There's she's also written Goddesses in Every, Gods in Every Man. Um, so the different aspects of the feminine are important to engage with. But if we're talking about being a goddess, I don't know, it just, to me, is a bit tacky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And also because we all, I believe, have feminine principles and masculine principles, irrespective of what our sex is. Absolutely. And we all need to inhabit the feminine and the masculine in all of us. And so for me, there's the, if I put it that way, the divine feminine, but there's also the divine masculine. Mm-hmm. And we need to engage and honour both. And for me, to change what our the way our society functions, whether it's to do with addiction, domestic violence, mental health, we need to inhabit the masculine and feminine within each of us because we're a reflection of. Our society is a reflection of our inability to engage with both. Hundred percent. Yeah. I so, like so I, I don't tend to, I don't ever use the word divine feminine. <laughs> I I just talk about the feminine and the masculine. And
0: embracing and, your whole being. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love yeah, it. Yeah.
0: Uh, what habits or routines do you have at the minute that best serve you? You are a habit person or no?
1: Um, I'm a habit person, except when I'm not. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very well said.
1: <laughs> because to me the habit person is the left brain masculine mm-hmm. principle of se- sequential mathematical order. Yeah. And the right brain is the flexible responsiveness yeah. feminine I've, principle. Let, let me can I rephrase
0: the question? Yeah, yeah. How do you best show self-love and compassion to yourself?
1: Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. so because I might have an ideal about what I want to do that sounds good for what I do in a day but then when I come into the day and there's the events of the day my unconscious and whatever else is in the mix of the day the thing that holds me the most is the permissiveness in my system to be able to be with the whole of my experience Mm -hmm and so if i can always listen to that then i'm okay and if there's room for me to make changes in my day according to that then i'll be okay and so the tools that i learned through my therapy and through the training that i did that helped me to be with the unthinkable thoughts and unbearable feelings and the images and the memories that are hard to be with because of overwhelm or shock or conflict in our system, because I know I have such a breadth of resources available at the tip of my fingers whenever I need them and I feel that trust in the unconscious, then I know I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it's knowing I've got those resources to use when I need to, but there because I've used them for so long now, there's an inbuilt acceptance and permissiveness, which means that I can flow and be flexibly responsive. And,
0: and that's like your foundation. That's where it all comes from, that yeah. inner acceptance. That's yeah. a beautifully phrased. Yeah. you write that down? That was good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's say someone's listening to this right now, right? And they're like, shit, Ada's making a lot of sense here. She's like, I've got these unconscious patterns running in my life. People are starting to maybe connect some dots and go, yeah, I've had this running since I was a... Mm -hmm. Cleo's pointing to herself over here. (laughs) Um, People are like, what am I going to do to tap into my unconscious? Where do I start? What advice might you have for them?
1: It's really important to be with someone to process it. Because we all have an unconscious and we're all gonna have our involuntary blinkers and involuntary ways of coping with what is uncomfortable. And so we need someone that can help hold the space to take us beyond our map and our involuntary imprint. And so that they can, with skill, enable us to go beyond to be able to be with the whatever it is that's there Mm -hmm. so yeah not to do it alone but to make sure you find a skilled person because there are a lot of people that from a genuinely caring place want to help but are actually doing as we said earlier more harm Mm -hmm. because they don't understand how to work with the brain the body and the unconscious and there's specific ways that
0: absolutely so Mm. it's about doing your research and and really finding somewhere that you feel completely safe Mm. I mean that's so important isn't it
1: it is awesome
0: okay and what about someone who's listening to this and they might be like hey I've realized I'm in an abusive relationship what are sort of the the steps they can take from this point do you think
1: it it's always individual because there's going to be their involuntary fears or thoughts that need support about how to unfold that. Because I know I was working with one woman that knew she was in an abusive relationship, but she had such a history of her own parents and women being, she was heterosexual, but because she had such an imprint of women being dangerous and not to be trusted, she preferred to stay in the abusive relationship because to be alone and not be able to have a community mm-hmm. around her was, it was better to stay with the devil she knew mm-hmm. than to be at risk of more coming from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to be able to have that skilled person to help respond to your unique Responses that come up and how to take care of them, but there of course there's places like Safe Steps that mm-hmm. are available to help take you through the the steps to get into safety. Awesome. Um, and there's you know there's a number of well-known domestic violence crisis numbers to ring.
0: We'll put some of those in the show notes as well so people can check those out if they need to.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's also, if you're in Melbourne, there's my women's group, Women Mm -hmm. Starting Again. Awesome. So we've got over 500 women in the group all over Melbourne. I run events all over Melbourne. And I'm teaching the things that unfortunately a lot of them aren't getting from the therapists that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So they learn the tools that I've been talking about. They learn how to listen to their unconscious, how to support their body, and we do social events as well as help them to understand what they're going through, and it's a lot of fun, We're actually. Yeah, I can imagine you yeah. have
0: a bit of fun, you get that community together and you're all learning these tools at the same time.
1: Yeah, and it's not surprisingly, I started this group early in 2016, and surprisingly, it never really feels heavy like we do at times process some big things but what's dominant is everybody says the same thing from the first time they come it's this space where this no one has to talk about what's going on there's this acceptance and support and celebration of where you're at now and so it's an incredibly heartwarming connecting experience and supports you to have uh, that safe place to be able to reclaim all of who you are.
0: Love it, so good, so good. And where can people get in touch with you? Where's the best place to get in touch with what you're doing, with the book and Mm -hmm. any events that you have coming up?
1: Sure. My website's currently still being constructed so you can... To look at the book, you can go to thewolfinasuit.com. To get easy access to me, either email via that page mm-hmm. or you can find me on Facebook, The Wolf in a Suit, or you can email me or ring me and or from the meetup group Women Starting Again yep. to find that group. So email Anita at Anitabentata.com. Mm-hmm.
0: We'll put all that in the show notes yeah. and any events that you have coming up.
1: I do. In the I have this amazing event coming up on November the 11th. Yep, it's from 10 till 4:30 in South Yarra at the mm-hmm. Melbourne High School and at, at the Unicorn Club.
0: Oh, I love that name. <laughs> I know. I know.
1: <laughs> and. W- you know, because my experience of domestic violence events is that you have experts on a platform and the audience is very passive, so it's very masculine principle. Now, this isn't putting down the masculine principle, but when the masculine principle is disengaged from the feminine principle, there's gaps. And so people hear information and facts and their heads get full in that kind of event and they can't transfer that information on how to use it in their own life, personally or professionally. And so I wanted to create an event that was user friendly and not depressing, but was very solution focused. And so I've created an event based on the feminine principle and the feminine principle is inclusive. So it's about being able to about our thinking and think about our feeling Mm -hmm. and it's so it's include it's listening from each side of the brain to each other and so in this event there isn't a passive audience there's me speaking at the beginning to build how we are going to be in the day and to set the scene but then with my team of female survivors We are gonna have a series of tables and on each table is a topic. A topic where there's still gaps and misinformation and each survivor is gonna be at a table to help mentor the group on the table to explore some of the questions that are on that table Mm -hmm. and engage and talk and be involved and hear new information. Mm -hmm. So at times we'll come together as a whole group to hear what's happening for everyone. And it's not the masculine principle where you start at one table and you work your way through all the tables. (laughs) It's the feminine principle where if you want to stay at one table all day, you stay there. You go as deep as you want. Mm -hmm. If you want to flick from table to table, you can do that too. You do what you need to do. And so there's that movement and that engaging in the way that's right for you with the different topics. We've got some professionals that are coming on board. We've got Joanne from Interact Support, Mm -hmm. an amazing legal firm in Melbourne that are not-for-profit charity. So their prices as a legal firm are are much more reasonable Mm -hmm. and they're going to be... on one of the tables to talk about court stuff, and they're offering the first ten people that book to come to the event that want a one-hour legal session about divorce and separation consultation. They're going to give that for free, so oh, that's awesome. one hundred and eighty-nine dollars for free wow. for the first ten people that want that that yep. are attending. We've also got um, Annie Kelly, who's from family from a family law firm not as lawyers but that she actually analyses the family court reports and she's a great advocate for how a lot of the court report writers are inadequate in their training and in their ability to assess mm-hmm. what's going on and there's a lot of really faulty court reports so she's providing a free booklet for all the attendees as well so getting lots of resources we've got an amazing raffle including an autograph book by Rosie Batty oh, we've wow. we've got some amazing art objects and things from a little touch of barley mm-hmm. and Fiona Kennedy has brought she's an amazing artist in Victoria who's got this stunning print that she that's worth over $200 that she's donating for our event awesome. that I, I want to keep day. it yeah yeah and we've got this amazing catering from Christine who shortly after our event she's off to New York for her nomination for the Stevie Awards but she's what's off. the
0: Stevie Awards
1: oh it's this a food thing no no it's not a food oh. thing It's amazing awards and I'm sorry, my mind's going (laughs) blank on, but it's one of the most beautiful awards to be nominated for. And so she does a lot of work like at the Roeville Community Kitchen and Food for Kids and does a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, it sounds
0: like an amazing event and so yeah. interactive yeah do you, think, gonna- do you think this is the way forward how we can start to tackle domestic violence and relationship abuse and this more this inclusive this feminine energy this is how we can start to really get on top of it
1: yeah yeah absolutely but people are leaving with their own assumptions still intact mm. because when we you know if we look at the way the brain works when you're talking facts and you don't go to the neural pathways in your system where you have your unconscious beliefs about how you negotiate relationships, then nothing changes. And so for me, as I was saying earlier, we've got all this awareness, but we're not looking, everyone will say, of course, domestic violence is terrible. But when you come down to it and you actually talk to people about it in detail, you start to hear the involuntary unconscious limiting beliefs that will shut down any possible possibility of a conversation or a action being taken and And they're
0: so individual aren't they everyone's got their own set of beliefs their own set of suppressed emotions so it takes delving into that person's individual story instead of saying Mm -hmm. hey these are the people that suffer from domestic violence let's all just give them this information in the Mm -hmm. one way
1: Mm -hmm. yeah because like my family are that example because they never spoke to me um, after I went to them on just before I Escaped and told them that I was in abuse and I was leaving, mm-hmm. other than me asking for help on that first day I left, my family only listened when I reported to them about what was unfolding next, what incident was happening, what court thing was happening. But they never spoke and had actually a, a conversation with me. Okay. And And when I escaped and I told them that I had been living in abuse, then I started to hear... One sister says she used to cry when she'd leave my house. And another sister only told me after I wrote the book that they used to talk to each other about their concern. But they didn't know how to help me and my children. And so that's why the way we've been doing things isn't working. Mm. We need more interaction so that we can be with the uncomfortable. Because that old method that I mentioned about the passive audience and the experts tends to at question time shut down the emotional and the uncomfortable and always will say very often say there's not enough time. Mm-hmm. And so there's a defense there. We're avoiding being with the the messy, the feelings the helplessness and the uncomfortable and we need as a community to build our emotional muscle to be able to talk about the uncomfortable but do it in a constructive way so I want to give people on the November the 11th the experience to experience how you can be with the uncomfortable in a constructive way so that they can then go do that in their own community and their own families and and friendship groups so my my mission is that anyone the people that don't think this event is relevant for them, that that's who it's relevant for. Because we all will know someone, whether we're aware of it or not, at some point in our life we'll all know someone who's impacted by abuse. Mm -hmm. And that person needs you to be able to know how to go beyond the brainwashing they're inside of or the brainwashing the person who uses abuse is inside of or the delusions that they're inside of. Mm -hmm. They need you.
0: To be that safe space. Yeah. So they can find that inner acceptance, which is what we want for everyone, right? Yeah. I love it. Anita, this has been an absolute bloody pleasure. This was such a great conversation. I think the work you're doing is so important and so amazing. And, you know, when this new series of books comes out, I I want you to come back on for a chat. I feel like we could talk for bloody hours, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. I've had a ball talking with you, Ryan. It's It's
0: been amazing. I've loved hearing your story. I can't wait to read the book. I think Cleo's pumped to read the book as well. We're all a bit fired up here so everything we spoke about is going to be in the show notes um thank you so much again and um yeah we'll see you next time
1: Thank you so much. Can I just add for people that want to come to the event? If you go to Facebook, The Wolf in a Suit, you'll see a pinned post with the link for booking because it will be limited numbers. Sweet. So you can go there or if you're not on Facebook, you can just go to Eventbrite and if you put in my name, Anita Bentada, it'll come up with the event and you can book directly so you don't miss out.
0: Awesome. Be sure to get on there and, yeah, I'll put in the show notes that booking link as well. We'll make sure people can, can get along. Thank you so much, much, Anita. And thank you so much to everyone that listened. Uh, We'll see you on the next episode. Peace out. That was bloody awesome, that chat. I had so much fun talking to Anita. What an amazing woman. What an incredible gift that she is sharing with the world. And, uh, you know, people like her are... Absolutely priceless and I'm so glad to connect with her and, and can't wait to connect and continue that friendship into the future. Guys, if you are digging this podcast, if you love this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It would help support the podcast so much. I'm having a bloody ball doing these podcasts. So the more <laughs> that you guys can support, the more I can do them, and the more amazing guests like Anita I can have on. Um for all the show notes, everything that we spoke about in the episode, head on over to shpodcast.com.au. That's shpodcast.com.au and last of all guys thank you so much for listening uh, it means so much to me it is said the greatest gift to one human being can give to another is the gift of their attention so I thank you for that that is all from me guys I'll see you all in the next episode peace out shift, shift happens I
1: can I can I can. What we do in life, echoes in eternity. Eternity.